fighting for freedom every day. Republicans right now, the conservatives, which unfortunately, this is what we have to do every time, even after a vote where people are sick and tired of the establishment, they're sick and tired of the squeezy, middle-of-the-road, squishy kind of Republican rhinos, and we vote conservatives in, then we have to fight tooth and nail in D.C. to actually be heard within the Republican Party. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yeah, darn right it is. Welcome into the program. What's up? It's a post-Monday. See, I've already made the gaffe. I was sharing out the live streams on social media right now, and I already said happy Monday. So there, <laughs> there's that. It's not Monday. It's the post-Monday. It is the greatest day of the entire week as we try to get back after our great three-day weekend. Hopefully, you got to enjoy a three-day Memorial Weekend. Welcome into the program. If not, then I feel bad for you. If you did, I know it's a very hard day to get back into the groove of things, but don't fear. The voice of reason is here. And we're here to get your afternoon kicked off here. Welcome into the program, broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country, multiple radio stations, TV, live streaming, and podcasting. However you watch or listen to the show, your Millennial General reporting for duty back at it and full of burgers and bratwursts and hot dogs and whatever else that we have on Memorial Weekend because apparently that's the tradition and I love it. Bottom of the hour, we have Congressman Tracy Mann. He's from the big first district in the great state of Kansas. Pretty much if you draw a line right down the middle of the state of Kansas, he represents the entire western half of the state. We'll chat with him. He's a great friend, former lieutenant governor of the state as well. We'll get an update on the debt ceiling debate, which we will talk about here throughout the program. Obviously, we're getting down to the wire, the new Republican bill that's come out in the compromise, the working across the aisle, the uh, negotiations between the Biden administration and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. Conservatives not liking it, and it's a joke of a bill, let's just be honest. But we'll get the details of it on what's really going on in Washington, D.C. We have that. We have your Memorial Weekend uh, shenanigans that we'll recap and a heck of a lot more here on the program for a post-Monday. Let's carpe diem, baby, all over this place and have a great one. I want to take a different approach, though to this debt ceiling. Before we jump right into the actual details of the bill and everything going on in D.C., I want to break it down for hopefully the other side of the aisle to maybe grasp at where we're coming from here and for the Republicans to remember to stay strong in what we're actually fighting for. Because you have to remember, we're in a position we've never been in in this nation before. And we can talk about reality versus we can talk about hopefulness on how we want to see this turn out. The reality is not going to be the same as what the hopefulness is going to be. The hopeful is that we get the federal budget back down to a point to where we are sitting at near 40% utilization of our national GDP, which is what we used to do back to, back in the day when we actually had a real federal budget, not an omnibus package where we would pass it to see what's in it, everything would be crammed into one, and then we would say either we have to pass it or else we're all going to die in the street. That was the way things used to be before... The Obama administration, that's not the way it's done now, and it hasn't been done since then because the 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 budget's out of hand. We're sitting at 120% utilization of our GDP, which means we're not making any money as a nation any longer. We are now well beyond that point, and we cannot keep up because back in the day, the federal government used to utilize a portion of the GDP growth, meaning the private sector, small businesses growing, people getting hired, taxes that were being paid based on manufacturing or the purchasing of raw materials or transportation or the purchasing at a retail store or your grocery or whatever else. 
we would create the wealth. We didn't have to take it from another piece of the pie. We did not have a socialist nation. We did not have a communist nation. We had a free market laissez-faire capitalist society where we would grow our own piece of the pie as opposed to trying taking it from somebody else. That's the way the system worked. And the government would take a sliver of that. Well, it started off at, what, like 9%. We were up to like 40% up to the Bush and Obama era, uh, where they would take a portion of that and use that for government programs. Now, we don't do that any longer. And they would take it to tax and subsidize and create whatever government programs that they want to do uh, from there over, which is the way things are supposed to be done. But now we have a government that has grown well beyond that, double, triple, quadrupled what it was back then, again, to the point of spending 120% of our GDP, and the private sector is not growing fast enough to maintain. So now we run into a situation where we're out of money. We have no more. And no matter what social program that you want, and I'm talking to the Democrats right now, progressives, no matter what social program that you want, no matter what government program that you want to oversee, no matter what environmental project that you want to do, because we're all going to die unless we do it, no matter what uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, SNAP, WIC program, whatever else, no matter what you want to do to take care of people, it does not matter. You're out of money. It's like your home budget where you've been putting your bills on the credit card because your monthly paycheck does not cover the credit or to cover the bills every single month, so therefore you have to compensate by putting it on the credit card. And while you really, really, really want to get your kids something really fancy and nice or get yourself something really fancy and nice, the credit card is maxed out, your paycheck is completely utilized, and you don't have any money. And the mindset today is, well, we'll just go ahead and get another credit card or ask to raise the limit because, by golly, we have to have it, period, end of story. That's not the way the real world works. And progressives have to start recognizing that. And whether it, it really comes down to now, whether we default now or we default later, because even the argument that we're having today is really just about the discretionary spending that's only roughly 40% of the federal budget doesn't touch the social programs. And the bill that Kevin McCarthy and Republicans have come out with are a complete disaster that just still allow the raising of the debt ceiling by $4 trillion when we're at a record $32, $34 trillion right now, and then tries to cap the amount that we can raise spending over the next few years. That's it. Not that good of a bill. So we'll talk with Congressman Tracy Mann about that at the bottom of the hour, but let's approach this from a different angle as well. What have we heard throughout the last couple of years of the Biden administration? We've heard that they've created so many jobs. In fact, uh, this is an older one where he said $6 million, but according to him during the last uh, um, State of the Union speech, that we've created 10 million jobs in this nation. It worked. We created jobs, lots of jobs. In fact, our economy created over 6.5 million new jobs just last year. More jobs <laughs> in one year than ever before in the history of the United States of America. Now, that's not true. As you know, that was the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, allowing people to return back to work after being taken away from their jobs. Uh, now that's gone. That was the State of the Union from two years ago. Last year, he uh, said it was 10 million jobs, or this year, just a few months ago, it was 10 million jobs. So we're up to 10 million jobs created under the Biden administration. And yet... According to our own Bureau of Labor Statistics, we have a 76% workforce efficiency rate. 70, meaning those within the working age 
able-bodied working-age individuals between 25 to 54 years old. Only 76% of them are working. 12% of them are working only part-time jobs, with 19%, according to the government, not seeking jobs with roughly a 5% unemployment rate. Now, you've heard me criticize the process that we do this already because 19%, while they say they're not seeking jobs, is not entirely accurate because that's also individuals who have given up trying to apply for unemployment and still don't have a job, what would still love to be able to get a job. So we have 19% of that able-bodied working age group not working, a 76% workforce, and a 12% that are working part-time right now that sums up the 25 to 54 working age. And it's not enough. It's not enough. While we see jobs slowly climbing across the nation, we still have massive amounts of job openings desperate to try and bring workers in. The majority of them in retail, hospitality, transportation, some of those that are more on the entry-level positions. Now, I thought that we created 10 million jobs, and if that were the case, then holy cow, man, we should have every single job filled. We wouldn't have any more seeking jobs we wouldn't have any more looking to hire jobs. We wouldn't have any more. It would be completely full, right? We've never had so many jobs created under the Biden administration, but we know that that's just not, not quite true. So what's the response to this? And Andy, what does this have to do with the debt ceiling? I'll get to that in a second. Because if we're not creating new jobs in the private sector, not just the government sector, which, by the way, is the vast majority, near 70 to 80 percent of the jobs that Joe Biden actually did create since his reign as president so far, uh, that's not helping grow the GDP. That's actually sucking more money out of the GDP. So that's another issue that we'll get to in a second. But in response to this, with the ongoing desperation to try and find new help, some states are turning to the younger generation. Oh, yes, high schoolers and middle schoolers lowering the age to actually be allowed to work in the workforce right now. As according to the Iowa Capital Dispatch, their Senate file 542 was signed last week on Friday that joined 20 other states in providing, quote, tailored common sense labor provisions, allowing those working under the age of 18 to work longer hours, even in some restricted fields, and even to be able to serve alcohol at certain bars. And it's getting a lot of pushback from the left side of the aisle. In fact, uh, reading some of the headlines from... Uh, some of the online left-wing uh, sources here. Clarence Thomas's newest opinion would literally bring back child labor in the nation. We have that one. Here's the other one. This is from AboveTheLaw.com. It looks like two of the nine Supreme Court justices are willing to let third graders be sent back to the coal mines. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, while the left is in a tizzy about two of the Supreme Court justices uh, deciding on this and giving their opinion... This is in regards to, as well, the uh, EPA ruling that they had last week, the second ruling that said that essentially disseminated the waters of the U.S. rule that we'll talk about as well uh, with the congressman at the bottom of the hour. Uh, while they made their ruling on that, it also had to do with the labor laws, saying that the federal government essentially should not be involved in child labor laws. It should be up to the private sector to decide on the rules for the state and for children to be able to work which, according to the AP, is something that the state of Iowa has done with Governor Kim Reynolds signing that, allowing those under the age of 18 to work longer hours and to work in places even by serving alcohol, which I've seen a lot of pushback from some places and some individuals on this bill. That includes 14- and 15-year-olds working in restricted fields, 
adding more safeguards against sexual harassment for minors serving alcohol, where the new new law excuse me, allows 14 to 15-year-olds to work between 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. during the school year and from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. during summertime where they can work up to six hours a day, two more than previously permitted, and up to 28 hours a week maximum during the school year. Teenagers between 16 to 17 years old can work the same hours as adults. Now, why are we defaulting down to the young generation? And is it a good thing that we're doing this? Personally, I'm kind of conflicted, but overall, I'm kind of okay with it, honestly. But regardless of how it's good or not on our end, let's look at the other side's response where they're saying, we're sending up back to the coal mines, child labor. We're putting the children back in servitude. We have to remind these individuals that they have created this scenario. The progressives have created this scenario. They've created the fact that we have 19% of the population, quote unquote, not seeking work, although it is true for some because maybe we have only one individual working in a household, but others have given up trying to work, given up trying to look for work, given up trying to file for unemployment, and therefore they've dropped off those nice little numbers at the federal government level. We also have an issue of the smaller generation, while the vast larger baby boomer population is going into retirement using up Social Security benefits, we now have a smaller workforce trying to pay for more people on government programs because they're retiring and aging out. And because we didn't focus on trying to increase the workforce size and population, we now have a heavier burden. That ties into the abortion issue, that ties into other ways uh, that they've tried to limit the sizes of the new generations, which in all, has decreased the size of our private sector and our workforce and the amount that we can grow as a GDP. How does it tie into the debt ceiling? We're bringing in less money, or at least we're going to soon. Is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Darn right it is. Welcome back into the program. So we have child labor laws being changed with the Supreme Court giving an opinion, at least two out of the nine, saying that the federal government shouldn't be involved in the issue. We have numerous different states, Alabama and Iowa right now, that are making two different law changes, uh, partnering with 20 other states across the nation, making some labor law changes right now, allowing... 14 and 15 year olds to be able to work up to six hours a day up to 11 o'clock at night during the summertime, 7 p.m. during the school year. And even being allowed to serve alcohol in some of the more quote unquote restricted industries, which is getting some pushback from the other side. And the whole reason that this is being done is because guess what? We're out of money as a nation. We're trying to fill desperately needed jobs where we've had the minimum raise, uh, minimum wage increases that have cut out uh, individuals from actually gaining work experience, being in entry-level positions, being able to fill those job markets. And while we've created that, why can't we look for a new generation that's smaller trying to fund all the great social programs at the federal level that are bankrupting us right now with the larger population of the baby boomers and others that are going into the retirement stage that are going to be utilizing these social programs at the federal level. So tithing with the federal budget right now, the debt ceiling, we're out of money. And we're spending more because we've grown the government more. We have more people on 
programs dependent on these right now. And what are we doing? The Republicans have yet caved. We were so optimistic, man. We, Kevin McCarthy was on top of it for the most part. He started this bill. The Republicans passed their bill just a few months ago and said, hey, we've done something. Democrats, what's your plan? And we told you at the very beginning of this that their starting point was a disaster of a starting point because that should have been the end of the conversation, not the beginning of the conversation. And while we have a lot of issues to try and change things and fill the gaps at the private level, because remember, in capitalism, the private sector always tends to fill the void, which is what we're doing with this child labor issue because of how much of a desperate state we're in right now. The federal government always finds a way to screw it up. And this bill that they've, quote unquote, come to a compromise on is not a good one, especially when you hear the chief economist or chief economic advisor for the Biden administration come out and say, oh, yeah, both sides have compromised and found their happy medium here. Well, I think it's it's usually a sign of a good compromise if uh, there are some folks who are a little bit unhappy on each side. Uh, but I think ultimately what we have here is a good, fair deal uh, that reflects the realities of the divided government situation that we have, uh, a deal that, number one, takes the possibility of default off the table, uh, through 2025 and protects our economy from the possible recession that could have occurred if there was a default, a deal that protects Social Security, protects Medicare, protects Medicaid, uh, important priorities for the president. And, and number three, all of those signature pieces of legislation that the president passed in his first two years in office, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS bill, the infrastructure package, all of that is protected as well. All those important investments will continue to flow into the economy. So overall, we think that this is a a very good deal and something that we would like Congress to pass uh, well in advance of the June 5th deadline. That audio from CNBC, by the way. Uh, so we have the quote-unquote compromise bill that's not a compromise. Look, I'm all about compromise. I realize that the great compromise back in the history of this nation was something that was very difficult to get through. It was something that, obviously, we tried to find the middle ground. We find the compromise from both sides and we move forward with it. Where the fringes are upset but yet the middle of the road continues on, and we move forward as a happy, hunky-dory nation. You can only do that if you're actually a nation still. And I'm not saying the nation's crumbling, trying to do the doomsday prepper stuff here, but what I am saying is that we've never been in such a bad financial situation before, and this is the point where you draw that line. And all the conversations, even up to this point, have been a joke in addressing the real, actual issues, but... Even the bill that the Republicans did pass in the House of Representatives before was much better than what we have right now because what we have right now is a wash. Chip Roy, other conservatives saying, uh-uh, ain't going to fly. So unless they went over some Democrats with this bill, which they're upset with the Biden administration for compromising as well, I don't know that we have a bill right now. We'll talk about it with Congressman Tracy Mann right around the corner here on The Voice Reason for a post-Monday celebration. Stay right here. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio, this is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. John Wright it is. Welcome back into the program here. On the Voice of Reason for a Tuesday, we sat down earlier today with Congressman Tracy Mann from the Big First Congressional District for the state of Kansas talking about the debt ceiling issue and a heck of a lot more. What do those bills actually look like? This is what he had to say. Congressman, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Andy. Always great to hear from you. Thanks for the 
fantastic work that you do. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's good to have you on the program. A lot of stuff that happened while individuals are recovering from the Memorial Day weekend with all the barbecues and and the lake and hanging out. You guys were hard at work, and the deal sounds like that there's been some type of compromise between Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and the Biden administration. But where are we? Is it a good bill? And, and what does this one look like as you guys go into vote? Yeah, great, great question. And, and first off, you know, everyone that celebrated Memorial Day, um, that's great. You know, we've got to continue to, to thank and express our gratitude for our veterans, mm. the men and women that fought, you know, to, to give us um, our country. We've got to make sure that the way that we live and the way that we, um, you know, lead this country is worthy of their sacrifice. So, you know, I would say this, Andy, as we start here, disappointing that we're even in this spot, right? I mean, President Biden waited almost 100 days, more than three months to have conversations, um, any negotiations. His his stance was he just wasn't even going to talk about what a debt limit agreement might look like. Um, as a result, you know, this is coming together at the last minute, but this, that we shouldn't be in this position. We should be having a longer term, uh, responsible adult conversation about the debt loads in this country and where we're at. You know, we are $31.4 trillion in debt. And Andy, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think we can keep spending money like this and that we're not going to have a consequence um, here moving forward. Yeah, that is very true. Uh, I mean, with how long they took, and they even said at the very beginning that any type of uh, budget cut at all was a non-starter for Democrats or the Biden administration. We can't cut spending. We can't downsize. We can't even move the unallotted money from the COVID-19 funds back into the general funds in order to pay for some of these debts to extend it out just a little bit. Because honestly, all we needed to do was get through the end of this fiscal year before we actually have a brand new budget. Hopefully, that's going to be a little bit more restraint and a little bit more transparent moving forward into the 2024 budget year. And they didn't even want to do that. So does this one make some cuts? Because from what we've heard, we've heard the fact that it does do some decent cuts, but yet maybe not enough. Yeah, no, that you're you're spot on. That's exactly right. And, uh, and we got to remember, you know, House Republicans a month ago passed Limit Save Grow, which wasn't a perfect bill, but it was a good bill. Um, definitely move us in the right direction. Um, but we are where we are. So the deal that's on the table, you know, it's mixed, right? There, there actually are some good things in it, though. It would limit top-line federal spending at 1% annual growth for the next six years. Um, it would do a lot of things to get Americans back to work, um, work-capable able-bodied adults that don't have dependents, you know, requiring them to uh, return to the workforce, which would be a good thing. It would um, stop new taxes the Biden administration wants to impose. It would sweep unspent COVID funds. You know, there there are some things like that. Um, There's some negative things, though, as well. Um, You know, it extends the debt limit all the way through January 1 of 2025, which means there's a good chance at that point, you know, we're going to be pushing $34, $35 trillion. I, I was and for what we'll have to meet this before and we'll continue to, I really think we ought to be extending our debt limit for about a year um, or until next spring and revisit this because we've got to be taking actions to get our spending under control. So so this bill, um, while it certainly could be worse, there's some things about it that, um, that I don't like as well. Sure, uh, that is true. Now, here's the big question is if this bill comes to the House floor, how optimistic are you of seeing the House sign it? But more importantly, coming from the Democrat side and the Democrat-run Senate, do you see them supporting this as well as AOC and Chuck Schumer and some of the other Senate Democrats right now are livid that Joe Biden has even compromised at all in this conversation? Yeah, we're going to find out. You know, so members of Congress fly back today. 
um, by, by and large. And so there'll be a lot of internal meetings, a lot of discussions on where members really at on this. And so um, this is going to play out over the next few days. That said, when this deal was struck, I, I think everyone assumed that, that President Biden would be able to deliver votes, um, you know, that that from his party to get it passed. Um, but we'll see if that actually is the case. Yeah. Well, I know that they've been doing the campaign saying that, that Republicans are the ones that haven't wanted to come to the table. Republicans haven't been the ones wanting to uh, deal with this issue. And they tried that campaign tactic from the smear uh, smear campaign from the media and from the Democrats. Obviously, it hasn't worked because you guys were on top of this from the very start and saying, hey, let's negotiate. Here's our bill that we passed. Here's our starting point for conversation. So uh, even though they've tried to say that it was your guys' fault. In fact, I love the comment that uh, one of the uh, news anchors asked uh, Kevin McCarthy was, if we default, will you own it? <laughs> and I had to chuckle a little bit because I don't think that talking point's sticking, showing how much you guys have actually worked and focused on this issue. No, that's right. And I'll tell you, I remember being in meetings a year and a half ago, Republican conference meetings, a year and a half ago, talking about this debt limit upcoming and what needed to be done there. Yeah. And, and then, the, you know, Kevin McCarthy went to the president February 1st, um, in their first meeting after Kevin McCarthy came speaker, talking about this debt limit with our nation's finances. And here we are last minute. Uh, and then also, you know, of course, limit say bro passed the House um, a month ago, which was, um, you know, a, a, not a perfect bill, but a good bill that, that pushed things, um, you know, to where they are now. So to say that, that House Republicans have done nothing, just, it's just categorically false. That's just not a true statement. Yeah. That said, we'll see where we are. You know, you know, we'll see where the, how the votes shake out. Regardless of this vote, Andy, though, we've got to, as a nation, get our fiscal house in order. You know, we are $31.4 trillion in debt. We've added $6 trillion to the debt in the last three days, or in the last three years. And uh, we cannot continue to afford to spend money like this as a nation and not think that we're going to have huge consequences for it later on down the road. Oh, absolutely. And I know the other side that while they don't want to cut spending, all their choices are, are to raise taxes is we just need more revenue. More Now we have more revenue coming into the country than we've ever seen before in the history of this country, but they want more tax revenue. Does this bill include any type of tax increase anywhere where uh, is part of that compromise to boost, quote unquote, revenues to the federal government? Uh, no, it does not. So wow. it does not include any new taxes, um, which is important. And, uh, and and it was a red line that was communicated to the White House. I would say this, you know, if if a Democrat in the House makes the argument that or someone from the left that we need more tax revenue, I would say if that's the case, then support work requirements. Because one of the biggest things we need to do is we need to get able-bodied, work-capable adults that don't have dependents back into the workforce. And, and one uh, we're not spending federal dollars on benefits for them. Two, they are in the workforce, so as a result, they're paying taxes. You know that's increasing tax revenue, and uh, and that's a really important thing to do. And number three, it would drive down inflation because one of the biggest drivers of inflation right now is the increased labor costs. You add supply uh, of labor will really help to uh, to tamper down inflation as well. So that's. That that's, uh, would be a big step in the right direction. Yeah. Talk with Congressman Tracy Mann from the Big First District of Kansas. Let's shift gears a little bit to some good news that I saw right at the end of last week going into Memorial Weekend as people were going into vacay mode. But the U.S. Supreme Court 
rocking it on some major issues over the last few months. The latest one coming out, taking another big jab at the Environmental Protection Agency and their Waters of the U.S. rule, which has been a really big stickler for a lot of people for a long time, especially those that own a lot of land or even in the agricultural industry. Uh, But the uh, rule that the Obama administration came out with was repealed under Trump, was re-implemented back under Joe Biden right now. With saying that really if you get a large rain in your backyard and a creek that ends up flooding, then that's now, quote unquote, a navigable water system and controlled by the federal government. That shot down last week by, by the Supreme Court, wasn't it? Yeah, this is yet another example of the administration and the radical left and this crazy growth of government that we're seeing. So they were saying um, under the auspice of the Clean Water Act, that this spot of regulation called WOTUS, Waters of the U.S., that they could regulate farm ponds, drainage ditches, to your point. I mean, basically any standing body of water, which is far beyond what the, uh, you know, what the, the, the intent of or, or the scope of the federal government ought to have jurisdiction over. This is just a gross overreach. So fortunately, the Supreme Court intervened. There was a case on the Sackett versus EPA case, which, Last week, the Supreme Court came out nine to zero. So, I mean, this wasn't um, a close call. This was nine to zero. Wow. Was uh, their vote to say no? The federal government does not have unlimited, unlimited um, jurisdictions here. Don't forget that the House and also the Senate passed legislation in the last um, three weeks that would strike down this order, and it passed bipartisan. So, of course, Biden vetoed um, that resolution, but. Um, the administration has been receiving a lot of pushback um, from the House and Senate on this as well, understandably so. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a big win. It's a big win because the Environmental Protection Agency has been one, I think personally, that has been way too powerful. We don't really get to restrain them at all. And uh, they've been able to control a lot of the private industry and a lot of the land. Now, how does this play in with the Biden's plan for that 30 by 30 plan with them trying to consume more lands across the nation? Does this maybe put a little block on that as well? I'd like to think it makes them reevaluate all of the crazy things that they're doing. We will, we will see. You know, this thirty thirty um, effort has been fairly quiet over the last few months. Could come back to life and get legs at any time, though. But certainly, you know, this rebuke of the EPA, I would like to think, sends shockwaves to the administration to say no. Um, personal freedom, individual liberty does still matter in this country. The Supreme Court's ruling was a great day for freedom and a bad day for those that are for the growth and expansion of our federal government. Yeah, amen to that one. Now, on the agricultural front specifically, I'm sure a lot of farmers and landowners on that front are happy about this ruling as well, aren't they? Yeah, ecstatic. You know, all the farmers, you know, we felt like where the EPA was going to start was regulating farm ponds, um, drainage ditches, irrigation, you know, those types of things. And so agriculture had had been united um, against this effort. So certainly um, good, good news for our ag producers, good news for oil and gas producers as well. As you think about the permitting, the permits and the things that they have to do, um, you know, to, with, with, with their wastewater, this is a very good um, ruling for them as well. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. John Wright, it is. Welcome back into the program. Last few minutes here of the show. Thanks again to Congressman Tracy Mann from the Big First District. 
in the state of Kansas. Interesting conversation when it comes to this debt ceiling bill. Here's the big question. Do you want the reality of it or do you want the pipe dream? Because unlike the Democrats, we look at things in a world of reality for the most part. Here's the reality of it. This bill is going to be the best bill that we get. Period. End of story. It's not a good bill. It is not one that actually solves the issue. In fact, it raises the debt ceiling by $4 trillion. So it's not going to solve our issues in any way, shape, or form. We will still have a bankruptcy right now or a default on the debt. We will still have government growing well beyond our means. We will still have a workforce that is nowhere near what it needs to be to grow the GDP to compensate for this because at the end of the day, we need more revenue into the government. Now, that's not to say, like the Democrats have proposed, to just raise taxes because that kills revenue. While you can get an immediate boost of revenue coming in from tax uh, tax rates coming in, uh, that doesn't solve the issue of the long-term and longevity of the private sector of allowing businesses to grow and flourish and hire more individuals and new businesses to start up and the expansion of businesses. doesn't do any of that. So you can get an immediate one-time hit, boom, which is what Democrats like to do because they can't see past the uh, end of their nose. Uh, I want a one-time stimulus paycheck. Or you could lower taxes so that way everybody gets to see it in the long term. They don't understand that concept. And right now we're bringing in more tax revenue than we've ever seen ever, ever in the history of this country. And it's still not enough to compensate for what we're doing. So let's just think about this realistically here. This is a bad bill. In fact, uh, Chip Roy was out talking about how bad this bill is. Not one Republican should vote for this deal. Not one. If you're out there watching this, every one of my colleagues, be very clear. Not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. So we have that, which he's very accurate on that. Here's the trigger point, however, is that this is unfortunately the best bill that we will get. And we have to be realistic about that. Why is that, Andy? Why are you so negative? Here's why this is the best bill that we're going to get is because we started at a very weak position already. When Kevin McCarthy, Mr. Nice Guy, working across the aisle, trying to show that we're willing to sit down and compromise, have a, have a serious conversation with the Biden administration, it worked in the sense of the political sense where we get to focus on Joe Biden not acting, focus on the Democrats not acting. That's the focus that we had, and it worked in the PR sense. But at the end of the day, we started in a very weak position with their bill by allowing any type of government growth, by allowing an increase in the debt ceiling, by allowing certain things that Democrats wanted in that as well, which is where we should have ended the conversation, not started the conversation. But because you already gave up all that power, even though you dominate and you own the House of Representatives, you own a half of the legislature that is supposed to hold the power of the purse, you could have strong-armed, you could have dictated, you could have dug your heels in the sand and say no new spending, period, end of story whatsoever, which is what Republicans should have done. And I got to give Republicans a little bit of credit here. I know that we're frustrated. I know that we're angry with this debt ceiling conversation, and I know that we're not going to get anywhere near what we wanted to on this. But here's the optimistic side and the bright side of the aisle, is the fact that for the first time, Republicans did actually try to hold their own, and Republicans did actually try to bring Democrats into compromise, and we were able to get Democrats to compromise a little bit of what they want if they end up supporting a bill like this. Now, it's still about an 80-20 compromise, but for the first time, we've actually gotten Democrats to compromise a little bit. And for that, I tip my hat. 
but it's nowhere near enough. And in a position that we're in right now, where we've never been in such a bad position in our entire life, this is not the time for us to start learning how to compromise again. This is the point where we dig our heels in and say, no new spending period, end of story. You have to come to our side or else we default and it's your fault. And we didn't do that. But we can't do that now. It's already a day late and a dollar short. That ship has sailed. That is long gone. There's nothing we can do beyond that now. So realistically, as I advocate for them not to support this bill, as I advocate for them to try and do something a little bit better, I'm here to tell you Republicans have already played chicken and they've already lost that game. And this is probably the best bill that we have, unfortunately, unless they can stand up and they start steering it a little bit further to the right with the stronghold conservatives that are advocating a no vote on this bill. And if Kevin McCarthy actually listens to them, and if enough Democrats realize the financial ruins we will be in if we continue to raise the spending and we don't grow the GDP and we have smaller and smaller generations coming up to fill that workforce to grow that GDP, we're going to be hitting a reset button a lot earlier than what many anticipate. That is your dose of reality and reason here on the program for a Tuesday. Back at it again tomorrow. We'll have another update. Until then, be your own voice of reason. Be that catalyst for change. This is The Voice of Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.